Welcome, Sarah, to Leader to Leader with Jennifer Zack. I'm pleased to have you here on the show with me today. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm going to take a moment here to formally introduce you to our listeners. Pager, writer, and art teacher. Sarah Wooster is the author of Painting Can Save Your Life, How and Why We Paint. She founded the painting school in an effort to share her passion for painting with her community. She teaches painting to anybody who wants to learn from senior citizens in South Dakota to marketing executives on Fifth Avenue. Wooster shows her work internationally has illustrated several children's books and her animations, multimedia, and her collaborative performances have been shown all around the world. She lives with her family in Brooklyn and in upstate New York. Sarah, where I want to dive into the, our conversation is where you talk about teaching painting to market marketing executives on Fifth Avenue, because I have long believed that painting, art, creativity has a place in business for leaders. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I completely agree. I think I think I probably come at this discussion from a kind of an interesting place. Um, in terms of your interest and in, in your expertise, because I, along with my uh, career as an artist, I spent many years working day jobs, you know, and it, whether that was producing photo shoots, um, I worked in PR and communications, executive writing. Uh, my last job was director of innovation at a small boutique PR firm. So I have also experienced managing teams, you know, and, and working with a lot of clients, um, especially in kind of my specialty was design and advertising and, and creative creative fields. Um, so I was always really struck as somebody who was lucky enough to be born into a creative family. You know, a lot of my, you know, my mom was librarian and my, you know, sisters always worked in theater and musical stuff. And we just, it, being creative was celebrated and accepted. And so I walked away from my childhood with creative confidence. But what I learned in the professional world is how few people have creative confidence um, and how that impacts their life. And you and I can meet someone and, and see where their creativity lies, whether it's their baking or, you know, the way they decorate their house for Halloween or, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of ways people express their creativity. But unfortunately, we're, we're always, I think, kind of landlocked, we're locked into this idea of creativity of if you were the kid in the fifth grade who could draw and was complimented for their amazing ability to draw an apple, you know, our, or you were first chair, you know, clarinet or something, there, there were like, the metrics were really narrow, right, for who was the creative person. And often I find too, people in my classes are like, oh, you know, my, my brother's a creative one. You know, as if there's just could be one creative person in the family. So I think we come with all of these terrible um, childhood moments. There's actually a psychology term that I'm sure you probably know called creative mortification, that we are actually mortified at some point in our childhood. 
to believe we're not crazy. Oh. A teacher, a parent, or, you know, a friend. And it's a real block. And so um, part of the teaching, I, I have many reasons I like to teach. Just A, I think it's the most transformative art painting. And I love when it people, when it really hits people. But the workshops that I do are really fun because uh, there's a steep success curve and, and I love it when people who come in telling me that they're not creative and this is just going to be a disaster and I can tell they're anxious and I feel for them because it's hard to do something you don't know if you're going to be good at in front of your peers and your colleagues. It's really hard, especially if in your, if you're, your brain, you're thinking, walking into a room, I'm going to be the worst person. This would be me in any athletic situation. <laughs> if I had to go, like, like, climb a rope, I don't even know what, like anything I would be having, you know, and you know, just so much fear and panic walking into that situation. So I feel it, but, but the difference is I'm really actually not athletic and everyone actually is creative. You know, they really are. It's just, they haven't found their medium. We just are creative beings, you know, and, and, and so I really love doing the classes with um, companies or groups of adults, especially because it can really be a game changer um, for them mentally to create something and have their friends and their colleagues compliment them sincerely on how beautiful it is and then go home and show it to a spouse. And the spouse is like, I can't believe you made that. That's so wonderful. And all of a sudden, the self-perception has a drastic shift, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally relate to that because I have found in my own life when I create my, I use a to-do map. So I use a mind mapping approach to navigating my day and I will create little doodles and they fuel my confidence, which helps me along my day with being able to look at that and say, hey, I did that. If I did that, I can also do these things over here. So many things that you said that I want to dive into here with you, starting with game changer mentally. How is it, or how have you seen it be a game changer for the traditional, maybe corporate executive, or anyone in leadership that doesn't see themselves as creative. And how do they take that newfound creative confidence? Love that into their role of leading people what have you seen yeah well i think i think the biggest thing i've noticed and i've experienced myself is any sort of brainstorming or creative solution any anything that you're walking into a room and you have to walk out the solution or multiple solutions so maybe that's um you know say in my life of innovation we had you know had clients with massive communication issues from their core you know you have to rewrite the entire way they speak about their company well if i'm going in there with three members of my team and only two of us believe that we are creative people and creative thinkers then probably only two of us are going to say the awesome ideas that we have 
and the other two probably won't. And so that doesn't work out because the way that solutions happen is collaboration and, and communication. And if only some people in the room feel that they have the right or that they won't make a mistake or we know, you know, the things that your brain tells you, um, then you're not going to do the best possible job. And nobody's going to know how good you are at your job because you're not saying it. And that's hard. I understand introverts in any situation, no matter how confident they are, might not be comfortable in that scenario I just put out. But maybe they could then, if their creative confidence grew, they might realize they have a really great solution. Maybe they didn't vocalize it in the meeting, but maybe then they'll believe they're going to be able to creatively convey this in an email to their superior, you know, or they, mm -hmm. they will write something heartfelt about the core of that person's business, you know, that really is smart and hits home. I just, I feel um, in innovation, looking at that and looking at all the crises that, that, that face we face right now, or even look at, if you want to talk about AI, like in the face of AI, what's going to, you know, keep humans from not being run over by robots in the broader sense is that we are creative beings and we are creative problem solvers and we have emotions connected to our brain and, you know, all the things that creativity is about. Um, and so I think anyone who feels that they do not have those skills right now is going to be even more anxious about that world. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if that answered your question directly, but I feel like there's just so many, um, to me, it's generally creative confidence is a, a mute button. You know, it just, if you don't have it, you're going to probably not, you know, I guarantee you the people in every room are having thoughts. That's just the way we are. We hear something and we think about it and we have a reaction or a, you know, conflicting idea or a supporting idea or, or whatever. And to not say it is really bad. <laughs> it's bad for your career. It's bad. And as a leader to not feel like you can make a decision um, as a manager, if you aren't thinking that you are not the person who is seen over the horizon doesn't have the creative futurist kind of viewpoint, um, imagination to envision a different kind of setup of your office or a different kind of business plan or mission or whatever, whatever your role is or different, you know, workflow system. If you don't think you're creative, you're probably not going to sit down with a piece of paper at night and dream up this amazing new way to solve all your problems. Um, so I just think creative confidence is the, one of the most overlooked executive skill, employee skill. I, I can't believe more HR departments don't have endless training for this and executive training mm -hmm. and team training. And yeah, I just did a, the, I just did the one that I just did. Um, I just did one on, um, at a beauty industry, you know, I don't know, fortune, I'm not sure what they are, but fortune 500 ish or something. Um, their marketing team. And it was really cool to watch them who have been working remotely often and some of the other sometimes um, get together and kind of just release and be fun and silly and creative. And to see some people and to see the shock in some people when they saw that we were supposed to be painting flowers and some people were painting like, you know, the container the flower was in with no flowers or someone painted the lipstick that was in there, you know, just to watch people. <laughs> 
really just kind of experiment. And then it was also equally fun to see the leadership team being there and being vulnerable with their team creatively. I think mm-hmm. that I would, I would love, I wish someone would ask me to come in and just have as a brainstorm is going on, people just painting. I would love to see what happens if honestly the painting was secondary, you're just doing the painting while you're verbally with someone poor, some poor person not painting and taking the notes. But I think that would be to combine the vulnerability of being creative and the openness and the willingness to like kind of expose yourself with the actual action of thinking collectively, I think would be really cool. But no one's asking me. I have a... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I see your point and I'll share a brief story that I think goes along with that before I circle back to something in, in your book that you just triggered by what you what you shared there. I gave the same workshop twice. Two different organizations. And when I gave it the second time, I integrated some creative exercises in the workshop. First time, we didn't have that. One of the reflective questions that we had as part of the workshop is, what are some of your your strengths, things that you do really well? The people who did not have the creative exercise really struggled with that question. It was like pulling teeth to get them to talk about their strengths. I witnessed the exact opposite when I gave the workshop the second time and included a creative activity. They were more than willing to be open and honest and vulnerable by sharing um, what they what their strengths are. What do you think about that? Uh, I I would guess, not really knowing, um, <laughs> this is not based on any research. I would guess it is linked to the vulnerability of being creative and being expressive maybe. Um, and also I, I'm a big believer in what, hap- what happens to a group in collective art making. Like I see, um, the intimacy and the, if you're willing to do that in front of me, I'm going to be more open about being open in front of you. And so just by kind of creating together, you've set a tone that this is a safe place for us to all kind of be ourselves together. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I think that that's, I think that's probably what I would guess that's what happened. I also think that there's some, some release that happens when you are being creative. There's just a general release of your, tension and you know you a general loosening up um a relaxation that happens that maybe that just counters what makes us see withholding I don't know I think it does because in the, the work that I do with somatic awareness we are at any point either orienting more to to threat or to curiosity 
And when we're in threat, the amygdala is running the show and there's not much room to be creative. Now, when you can be curious, that's when you feel the safest. And that's when you're, I think people are, then they're in their prefrontal cortex where they have access to their uh, creativity. Because I agree with you that we all have it. I think of it as, as a muscle. It's yeah. just a matter of how much it gets exercised. I See, want to. They were, actually, they were actually functioning in a different portion of their brain at that moment, you think. Like they were actually. Oh, that's that's so what I think. I'll have to read about that more. That's really interesting. Yeah, um, that's what I, and I've observed in people, including myself. It's really fascinating. I want to turn to a couple chapters in your, your book right now, because I think two of the most important things in a leader are the ability to have vision and the ability to make decisions. And you have within your book, you cover both of those things. And in chapter seven, I highlighted chapter seven is learning to observe. Page 123, vote found that the artist's eyes looked around the entire picture, including the big parts of ocean or sky that most people would consider empty, while the non-artist focused only on the objects. How does that translate into business and leadership within business? I think, um, and not just business, I think any like um, work kind of scenario, because I would say this is, we see this in scientists a lot. Like there's a high percentage of uh, Nobel laureate scientists who have creative hobbies. And people with creative hobbies are much more willing to be more cited in journals. That's just proven. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think it must be partially because you are more curious and you're aware of every single thing around you. So, you know, if you are researching, even if you're researching, um, I have a cousin who researches strep, the strep A virus. So, but he's also very creative. So I would imagine when he's looking into petri dishes, I don't even know what he looks into petri dishes and data. He is more aware of the negative space and the story that's being told outside of the numbers. And, you know, um, because he, because he has trained himself to do that. But I think that study is really important because I think, um, especially if it's your, if it's your expertise and you're doing it routinely day to day, it's very easy not to look at the other stuff and, and look for solutions in other places. And um, I think leading is all about being curious about your team and about your job and about your clients and about your products. Um, so the, the more you're seeing all of the big picture and the more curious you are, that just can only benefit you. I'm speaking at Disrupt HR tonight, okay. and my topic is curiosity. Oh, that's <laughs> so great. Oh, I wish I could. Is it going to yes. be on YouTube? I'm going to have to watch that. I love talking about curiosity. That's great. Yes, yeah. I do too. It's one of my, my favorite, favorite topics. Yeah. I want to get to 
what you have to say in your book about decision making. And then I'll have one final question for us as we as we wrap up. In a year chapter about making decisions, I highlighted learning what decisions to make at key stages of making a painting will drastically increase your chances of painting something that you love. I think in business, this also translates into making solid business decisions. What do yeah. you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I wish I wish I could take a class that was just decision making because I think it's such a key, it's such a key part. Like it's not something we're taught. I think that we're supposed to almost have this like intuitive you know, that we're just intuitively supposed to know when you're supposed to do what you're supposed to do and that ex years of experience will lead to you knowing how to make the right decision. But um, if painting is any example, I guess what happens is you, um, you accumulate your skills, you accumulate your knowledge and your skills, and then you get to that point. But in my class, I teach like decision-making is the thing. Like life, like making you know, making, uh, I'm working on right now, a communications plan for a client and it's deciding what I'm going to leave out is as important as deciding what I'm going to leave in. And that's where I am right now. And that's really interesting. That's a really interesting part of the decision-making process because there's so, if there's so much good stuff, the decision for comms is often about what are you not going to say so that the focus is really, really highlighting what's most important. Um, same with painting. It's like when you're making a painting, it's the decisions are often about if how many clouds are you going to add to make a beautiful pattern, but when's, when's the one cloud too many? <laughs> you know, too yes. Many. Knowing when to stop. <laughs> yeah, knowing when to stop or, you know, considering like a, a lot of decisions in a painting have to do with considering. I just wrote a sub for my newsletter. I wrote about um, how you move the eye across the canvas oh, yes. um, and that involves a lot of decisions that you then have to put yourself in the viewer's point of view like you mm -hmm. have to see the canvas as somebody who's encountering it and their eyes are going to be where are their eyes going to go that's a big part of painting if you care about the viewer experience some people don't but if you do mm -hmm. then how do you move them um, across the page and and that's always interesting that's a decision am I gonna mm -hmm. tilt say that I'm doing a still life, am I going to tilt the bananas different so that the eyes are going to roll naturally and beautifully off the canvas then? Or am I going to put it in a way that'll be disconcerting? Because that's the experience I want the viewer to have is to feel like funny looking at it, you know? So decision-making and painting is like that. But I would think that you, in this comp stand from that same point of view, I have to be thinking about the audience that they want to target when I make the decision about what to keep in and what to keep out, you know, it's, it's different. It's different because it's a, it's an, a creative emotional experience versus a creative intellectual one. But there are a lot of, there are a lot of similarities. My mind goes to the saying, begin with the, the end in mind. Because I think that's important when we're making decisions. But I also know that that is part of my own experience when I approach the canvas that it works better if I begin with the end in mind 
because then I am working in a layering function. And to me, that is similar to to business. Interesting. But that's your process, right? So some people, like it's kind of like writing a book. Some people would start with outline and know exactly what the story is going to be and what's going to happen each chapter. And then the other people just start on the first page. And hold yes. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's no business correlation that works well in the second example, but yeah. No, I maybe I, not. It's interesting process. Process goes right along with decision making, isn't it? Yeah. And that may be part of me being the kid that for whatever reason, I loved puzzles and I did not like most kids would put them together. You put the frame together first. I always worked from the inside out. I don't know why. That's so interesting. Yeah. This must be a personality test to talk about how we all did puzzles, right? (laughs) Or who goes to the back of the book and reads the last page first instead of starting, you know. I do that too, you know, especially with magazines. I'm a frame. I'm an outside framer on the puzzles. (laughs) All right, Sarah, I want to ask you one more question. And it relates back to your statement about how creativity can impact people's lives. And I mean, there are so many valuable ways that it can can impact a person's life, work, their leadership, their play. And with with leaders in mind, what would you say is the number one way that creativity can impact their life and how do they get started if they're if they're scared to death of picking up any sort of medium how do they get started with that first stroke or whatever it might be I think well we touched earlier I think creativity being creative gives you creative confidence and you know Mm -hmm. doing creative activities and that just is endless as far as problem solving brainstorming, you know, making interesting hires, you know, making, you know, bold choices, you know, all these things are connected to being creative, innovating, how you work, all of those things. Um, I also, I would also, I know it's probably not a lot of business people might not agree with me, but I personally believe that you, being creative makes you more empathetic. And I think Mm -hmm. empathetic leaders in 2023 are probably the better leaders. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just, for a variety of reasons. And I think being an empathetic person, just to, I'm going to guess during COVID empathetic leaders probably fared better, you know, just, just because of being able to relate more to what everyone was going through, whether it was their team, the client, the people buying their products, whatever. Um, so I think being creative just makes you a more empathetic person. It just does. And I don't know why it just is like, Mm -hmm. it just, it makes you consider more the world around you and especially painting. You're more noticing the world around you. And then it's hard to stay in your own selfish bubble. Um, and how do you get started? I think 
I think that I would say how what not to do is to get stuck on the idea of one creative thing. And then I'm afraid sometimes people are like, I just want to do ceramics. That's all I want to do. And then they do the one class and they don't like it. And then they assume, well, that's it. It's kind of like you need to put, it's like try, getting a dress for a big event. You just got to keep trying things out until you feel that's your medium and I, I think almost anyone is going to find whether it's dancing or baking or um you know anything I mean painting cars classic cars you know I mean there's so many amazing things I have a, I have a friend whose son is obsessed with uh, making flies for fishing all he wants oh. to do and he makes these absolutely beautiful sculptural flies so that's creative and so maybe yep. you need to, maybe people need to stop thinking about their hobbies that are not maybe traditionally like an art is not a creative thing mm -hmm. and just lean into that like if you're already doing flies making flies why don't you go big <laughs> go bigger <Yeah. laughs> become more creative if you already kind of love cooking try and create your own line of sauces and have your friends over you know for barbecue you know like really just push what you already love to do that said, painting is amazing. Honestly, if, if anyone has not tried it, it's most people are good at it if they have a good teacher. It's not like drawing. Drawing can be hard. It could be a hard skill to learn, I think, because it's drafts, drafting has narrow mm -hmm. parameters of what is successful in, in our minds. And I think drawing can be a little bit hard. But like ceramics, I know so many people have gotten into ceramics. Like it's really touched them. Dancing. Um, going back to their childhood musical instrument, if they love that, that's really rewarding. Um, writing poetry. And, and what's mm -hmm. what the one of the beautiful things that came out of COVID is you can take classes online now for almost anything you can dream of. So no matter where you live, if you've got broadband, you can learn how to do French cooking. You can, you know, write poetry and build a community of other poetry loving people, you know. So I think it's a great time to be creative and to start. And everyone is creative, I, without a doubt. Um, they just, they need to put the effort into making it part of their life. And sacrifice some, something else for a few hours a week, you know? Yes. And experience the transformation. Yes. 100%. It's transformative. I completely agree. It can change your life. Where can people get their hands on your book? Yeah, anywhere and most probably any of their local bookstores, Independence, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Bookshop. Um, it's pretty much everywhere. Right. Sarah Wooster, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Leader to Leader with Jennifer Zack, where I had the pleasure of hosting Sarah Wooster. Don't miss out on Sarah's Painting Can Save Your Life book, for an additional boost of inspiration and actionable tips to nurture your creative confidence.